so once again this morning, we are going to talk about a bad idea about Jesus. Uh, when we talk about that, what we're talking about are bad or uh, claims made about Jesus that do not um, uh, fit or are not in accordance to what the Bible teaches. Uh, now, we've looked at a number of bad ideas, and we've kind of seen where they come from. We've seen, for example, that bad ideas come from social pressure, and that's a big one. When, as society changes, as uh, culture changes, uh, bad ideas often come with those changes. We've also seen that these kind of bad ideas can come because of church conflicts or church politics, as people try to maneuver themselves into a particular position. Uh, we've seen these kind of bad ideas come about uh, because of uh, just not being able to understand a doctrine or an idea. And so somebody comes along and tries to uh, perhaps solve uh, that difficult theology. My point being is that we need to be aware that these bad ideas, but also these circumstances in which these bad ideas have a tendency to be planted and grow, are circumstances that are around every generation. They are in every situation. They have been constant over the history of Christianity. And these bad ideas do cause significant damage. These bad ideas do have real-life consequences, as we have seen. This morning, I want to talk to you about a bad idea called Apollinarianism. That's a mouthful right there. I can barely spell it. This bad idea about Jesus was one that was very short-lived. It caught fire for a very short time and then died. From all the research I could do on Apollinarianism, it has probably been a thousand years since anybody has officially held this position. Apollinarianists believe that Jesus was partially God and partially human. So the idea would be that Jesus had a human body, he had human emotions, human experiences, but he had, for example, a divine mind. And so you can think of it this way, it's the teaching that Jesus was half human, half divine, or perhaps two-third human and one-third divine, depending on how you did the math. Of course, we believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God, fully human, and so we would say, no, this is a bad idea. Now, to talk about this bad idea, we come to a pretty amazing passage in the book of Colossians. This passage I would call a seven-course meal on the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the purpose of Colossians is to exalt Christ, to put him as high as possible uh, in the situa- for the church in Colossae. The letter is a response. The Apostle Paul has sa- says he has heard word that this good church is under attack from false teachers. Now, the attack is is that these false teachers have come into the church and taken advantage of people who perhaps don't know their Bible very well. New Christians, perhaps, who are not fully aware uh, of all of their doctrine. So these false teachers were coming in, and they were manipulating those kinds of people. And so what this book is about is giving Christ the preeminence, to put him back where he belongs. And in this opening, really, uh, a hymn of, uh, of Christ, we have three particular supremacies that Paul wants to lay down, or three ways in which Christ is supreme. And as we'll see, Christ being supreme in these ways are very different than the way these false teachers were presenting Jesus. So those are the three points for you, three ways in which Christ is 
supreme. Number one this morning, Jesus Christ is supreme from eternity. You go to verse 15, you see the the statement there. He says, who is the image of the invisible God? Now, I want to stop right there. Because I want to go back, first of all, I know we didn't read it, but go back to verse 14 and see that the Bible says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So I want you to understand that when Paul says, in whom is the image of the invisible God, we have to understand what's at stake here. Paul is talking about the person who is responsible for our redemption and the way by which we get forgiveness of sin. So this is a pretty big deal. So back to the statement, the image of the invisible God. Now the idea there is that Jesus is the exegesis of God. Now exegesis is simply a very old term for clarification of the author's intent. So for example, every week I open my Bible to the passage I'm going to preach on. And it is my job to do the studying, to do the research, so that I can make sure that when I stand up here, what I'm presenting to you is a clarification of what the Bible intends to say for itself. And so when the the, the, the text here, the idea here is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, means when we see Jesus, we see God clearly. It is the idea that the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiant glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. This is a divine statement. When he says he is the image of the invisible God, he is making a statement that Jesus is divine in the same way that the Father is divine. But then move on to the rest of the verse, the firstborn of every creature. Now here's a phrase that has been twisted quite often over history. Some people have tried to use it to say, no, see, Jesus was a created being. Now, the idea here is to extend the idea of Jesus being the clarity of God. First, the idea of firstborn means to be at the top. For example, in Psalm 89, the Bible describes David as the firstborn among the kings of the earth. It is not chronological. He's not saying that David was born before all the kings of the earth. It is the idea that David was of all the kings on the earth, the most preeminent. And so when he says the firstborn of the creatures, it means that Jesus Christ is preeminent. And it means that he is fully divine. Now he had to be. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 3, when man sins and we're banished from the garden, God curses all of creation. Which means any way that we are going to be saved had to come outside of that curse. Had to come from outside of that creation. He had to come from outside and enter in. And so that means he had to be divine in every part of his existence in order to be supreme for all eternity. The question is, why would we bring up a... Uh, a bad idea about Jesus that was around a thousand years ago and nobody is talking about at all. And it's because this bad idea of Jesus being half God and half human came from probably the sneakiest place that bad ideas can come from. What's the sneakiest place a bad idea can come from? Good intentions. Apollinaris was a pastor who loved the Lord. So all the records and the writings he had before he came up with this idea is somebody who was orthodox, somebody who, again, preached the gospel accurately. 
He was there at the Council of Nicaea, and he sided with those against the Arianists and fully embraced the true gospel. Because of the controversy, though, he went home and thought, you know what I need to do is I need to put together something to help people understand the nature of Jesus Christ. And so understanding the culture, understanding again that people would be familiar with Greek philosophy, he tried to take what the Bible taught and brought in Greek philosophy to try and, try and find a way to help people understand. You would think of it this way, it would be like trying to create a Sunday school curriculum that combines the Bible with Disney princesses. Somewhere along the line, something's not going to fit. And because of his work that he did, he got called before a council himself, facing men who had made up the same council that had rejected Arianism, and he had to list there, list, uh, listen and sit there. And as he would write later, to his embarrassment and shame, had to hear them condemn his idea. Now, I think I've told you before, years ago, when I preached my very first sermon for a youth Sunday, I told you it was pretty awful. What I probably have never told you, though, is that in that first sermon, I literally taught Apollinarianism. Now, looking back, it shouldn't be a surprise. I was 16 years old. I was a new believer. I was preaching for the first time with no help and no training. And here I was, unintentionally digging up a thousand-year-old heresy. And while my pastor was very encouraging, told me I did a great job in my presence in the pulpit, I had to sit there in the embarrassment of having him explain what I had said. Now, I've never heard anybody else try and teach this bad idea. Do you know what I have heard in ministry? I have had people say to me, studying the Bible is an impediment to godly living. I have had people say to me, I'm never going to pick up a theology book. I have had people say to me, doctrine doesn't matter. Yet yeah, here in this passage, our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, is tied to the single most important theological truth, that Jesus Christ, the eternal God, came in human flesh. He was not a God who looked human. He was not an elevated human being. He was not just God wearing a different coat. He was not somebody only half God, but a member of the triune Godhead who had been supreme for all of eternity. So that's the first supremacy Paul wants to lay down. The second one is this, Jesus Christ is supreme in creation. Jesus Christ is supreme in creation. Having declared Jesus the firstborn of the supreme ruler of creation, we're, we're told in verse 16 once again that by all things, uh, by him all things were created. Now the idea here is not just that Jesus created the sun, the moon, and the stars. In fact, it's clarified for us, what does it say? That he made everything in heaven and everything on earth. He made everything that which he can see and everything we cannot see. And then we get this list. He made thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. Now this was a common way for teachers to talk about the spiritual world in the Old Testament. This is how they would describe, for example, the spiritual dignitaries. Let me explain it this way. If you've read your Bible, you know only a handful of times in it, we get this little glimpse into the spiritual world and all of its cast of characters. And most of us just kind of simplify them as angels and demons. But if you read your Bible, what you find out is that these angels were all organized. For example, we meet angels that are what we would say delivery angels. We meet angels that fight demons. We meet angels that spend all of their time worshiping God. We meet angels that apparently act as some sort of executive board. 
So the idea here is that Jesus is the creator of the sun, the moon, the animals, you and me, but also the creator of all of these different types of angels. But then the text goes further. Not only is Jesus creator of all things that have been created, it says they were all created for him. The idea there is one of a goal. So the the bugs, for example, we saw a really big bug in Sunday school. The bugs were created for him. Apples, fish, all these different types of angels created for him. It's the idea like one would decorate a church for a wedding. It's like the idea of you would decorate your home for a birthday party to honor the person. All of creation has its purpose in being for him, pointing to him, for his glory. But then the text goes even further. In verse 17, he says, before all things and by him all things exist. He says, not only did he create all things, not only his, he have his eternity and all these things, but creation itself owes its existence to Jesus. So we would say literally, Jesus is the reason your left hand doesn't just dissipate into a bunch of particles. We would say, you know what? The angels right now, all of them, all different types of angels now, they are held together by Jesus. But even here's a thought. It would go all the way to the eternal soul of your loved one who is already in heaven, who is already in the presence of God. Their soul is being held together by Jesus. Now, why would all of this, knowing all this matter? Why would, why would any of this matter? Because as we read through the book of Colossians, we find out that these false teachers were like, like to make a big deal out of lesser things. So, for example, in chapter 2, we find out these false teachers had fooled Christians into thinking that food had the ability to commend them to God. They would, for example, teach that only spiritual Christians... Only mature Christians would eat these kinds of foods. Sometimes they would, be, they would teach vegetarianism. Good Christians only ate vegetables, never ate meat, for example. They would teach, oh, you know, good Christians only drink these kind of drinks. And if you held to this diet, of course, you were the better Christian. Or in chapter 2, we find that they were playing around with holidays. The idea being, you were a good Christian if you didn't observe this. You were a good Christian if you recognized a new moon. And so if you didn't celebrate this, but you recognize this, you, of course, were the better Christian. And then they would even fool around with this idea of angels. And it was the definition of humility for them. Real, genuine, humble Christians only prayed to the angels. It meant that if you, if you really were humble, you wouldn't assume that you could pray to God. You would pray to one of the messenger angels in hopes that maybe that message, if you were good enough, would find its way delivered to God. And if you just kind of worked at it, maybe you'd get high enough that you could pray to the executive board. And they would vote on your prayer, and they would send it to God with a recommendation. That's literally the idea. But this was all about humility. If you were truly humble, you would pray in this position, this way, to these angels. Now, unfortunately, all of those measuring sticks often get used today. Yet the idea makes no sense. To give you an example, how many of you have a fruit tree in your yard somewhere? Okay, a few of you. If you have an apple tree in your front yard and it was created by Jesus, 
And it was created for the purpose of pointing to Jesus. And it was held together by Jesus. Why would you worship the tree? If food is made by Jesus, points us to Jesus, is held together by Jesus, then why would your worship or your spiritual life be centered around whether or not you eat T-bone steak? If all the nations and governments of the world and all of these various levels of angels are held together by Jesus, created by Jesus, are for Jesus, why would we ever put our hope in those things? But one of the biggest issues is this. A church that is distracted by lesser things is always distracted by lesser things. Let me explain. A church, for example, that is distracted by whether or not they should celebrate a particular holiday, maybe like Christmas. Or maybe a church that is distracted by whether or not they're vegetarians. Or a church that is distracted by whether or not they're praying in the right position to the right person in the right place. Churches that are distracted by those things will be distracted when someone walks in with a, ta- with a tattoo or smokes or smells bad or is overweight. They will be stra- distracted by those things and they will be more concerned about those things than they will be about the immortal soul of the person that walked into the church. A church that is distracted by lesser things will always be distracted by lesser things. However, if we place Christ as supreme over all things... If he is supreme over all of creation, then the lesser things fall into place and they sit in the importance where they belong. That's the second argument Paul wants to make, that Christ is supreme in creation. And then lastly, he wants to tell us that Jesus Christ is supreme in the church. Verse 18, he gives this declarative statement, Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He calls or clarifies he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, again, we see that this is not the idea of uh, chronological. Other people were raised from the dead before Jesus was. The idea is that his resurrection was the beginning of something. Everybody else who had been raised from the dead at that point died again. But he rose, and he currently lives. And that's why it is the most important of every resurrection. The point here is that Jesus rising from the dead is the rising of the dead of all other resurrections. Or we can say his resurrection is preeminent. His resurrection is the reason there will be resurrection on the last day. And he clarifies this, or Paul clarifies this, by giving us the gospel story again. Verse 20. We're reminded that we have peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Everybody who's going to be reconciled to God will be reconciled through Jesus Christ. The consummation of all of history, both in heaven and earth, will be found in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 21, reminded what we were before him. Illegals in the God's kingdom. We had no citizenship. We were enemies to God's kingdom. We proved it by the evil we did. Yet we are reconciled in the body of Jesus' flesh through his death, and we are made acceptable to God. He has the preeminence. Now, remind ourselves, the text opens by Paul making the point that Jesus is eternally supreme. He is eternal God. And now we're told that Jesus is supreme in the church, but he's supreme because of his humanity. He is supreme because of his life, his blood, his death, his resurrection. You see, we're fully recognized, uh, re- reconciled to God because he was fully human. There's not enough food laws, there's not enough, uh, enough festivals, there's not enough praying to angels to do that. It was because Jesus was fully human, 
who lived and died, spilled his blood, died literally, rose from the dead. It was his humanity that makes him preeminent among us. In heaven and earth, among all created things, among all things reconciled to God, he is preeminent. Jesus Christ came to save every aspect of you. He had to be fully, in order to do that, he had to be fully human. Do you understand this morning that if you are a Christian, your eternal soul is not the only thing that Christ redeemed? Your mind, your strength, your will, your body have been redeemed. It is your destiny to spend all of eternity worshiping and loving the Lord with all of who you are. Or let me put it this way. If there was any part of Jesus that was not human, he could not save it in you. So, for example, if Jesus was human in every way except his mind, maybe he only had a divine mind, that would mean there's no hope for your mind. No hope that your mind could be renewed. So, let's say you struggle with anxiety or depression. If Jesus was divine in his mind, that means you have no hope of being free from that anxiety or depression. If he was only divine, if he was divine in his mind and not human, that means that you won't be free of it in the next life either. If Jesus was only human in his mind and will, there's no hope for your body. Why would you pray for healing? You can't, because he didn't redeem that if he was not fully human. And that would mean that your bad back and your arthritis will be with you for all of eternity. Does that make you happy? Do you understand? Jesus saved all of you. And if Jesus saved all of you, and he is the reason you are reconciled to God, then he is Lord over all of you. He is preeminent over everything that you have. He is first in your marriage, first in your parenting, first in your job, first in your ministry, first in your intellect, first in your time, first in your love, first in your eating, first in your playtime, first in your art, first in your speech, and on and on and on it goes. Now, many well-intended people have come along in my life, and I'm sure in your life, and have tried to give us rules to live by and standards to hold to and habits to form. And many times those rules and those standards and those habits are wonderfully helpful. The thing, the warning here, though, is that it's too easy for rules and for standards and for habits to be replacing the fact that Christ is supreme. That is our motivation for living. Many well-intended people have come to me and come to you with all sorts of good ideas about how a church should minister, how it should do ministry. And they're wonderful ideas, and they're effective ideas, and they reach people. But the reality is, the warning is, it is far too easy for ideas and programs to replace the recognition of Christ as supreme. We do what we do at Awana. We do what we do in Sunday school. We do what we do with funeral meals because Christ is supreme. So 1,800 years ago, someone with good intentions came up with and spread a very bad idea about Jesus because of the careless handling of the scriptures. And when the Bible is handled carelessly, carelessly, it leaves us and others vulnerable to these bad ideas. The biblical Jesus is one presented to us as supreme in every way, supreme from all of eternity, something only that can be said about God. Supreme in all creation, all of creation comes from him, is for him, held together by him. 
We, we eat our food and we celebrate our birthdays because they point to him. All of it is for him. And so let us not get distracted by lesser things. Jesus is supreme in the church. He reconciles us to God through his blood. His resurrection means we will be resurrected. Uh, resurrected. This makes him owner of the very top of our life. Not our children, not our spouse, not our job. Jesus. Because as Paul and as the scriptures desire to do in this text, to make sure that in all things, Jesus Christ has the preeminence. And he can have that preeminence because he was fully God and fully human. Making him supreme from all of eternity, supreme over all of creation, and supreme over the church. Let's pray. Father, I have not done justice to the supremacy and the preeminence of your son. Lord, he, the limitations of nouns and verbs are a struggle, but your son is supreme. It has preeminence over all things. And I pray, Father, he would always be supreme and preeminent in our lives and in our thinking. We would not settle for lesser things. We would not allow ourselves to be manipulated into thinking anything less. And I pray, Father, that he would always be supreme here in this church in the lives of those who are here this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.